I'm Trevor Cummings, and these are my thoughts on money. Hello, and welcome to the Thoughts on Money podcast, what we like to call Tom. I am Trevor Cummings, your host of the podcast and your author of the Thoughts on Money blog. I'm here today with my good friends to talk about an article I wrote called Benchmarking, and we have none other than Mr. Sean Latimer. Hello, hello. Welcome back. You just had a baby. We did. Your wife had a baby. She did. You did not have a baby. I didn't do anything. You have a baby girl now. Congratulations. That's right. That's right. Thank you. You were missed on the podcast um, and uh, back uh, because of such high demand, none other than Mr. Kenny Molina. Hey, I'll be right back. Sean, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Dan, now you have to say congratulations. Congratulations, Sean. To. That's right. All right. Thank you. <laughs> so you got Sean, Kenny, and Dea today. Uh, we mentioned this in a previous podcast that we are going to talk about benchmarking. And I'm excited to record the podcast because I don't think that I really could get across some of the things that I want us to discuss today about benchmarking in this you know thousand-some-odd-word uh, article I wrote. I opened up with a story uh, that I'm always trying to think of like analogies and things that relate to me, real world application. Um, and this idea of in 1985, when they introduced new Coke, there's two things introduced to the world in 1985. One of those things was me. And the other <laughs> thing was uh, new Coke. Me too. Uh, yeah, you and I both. Um, I think it's, I, I really like that show, Stranger Things. And uh, in the show, uh, one of the, the kids are fighting about something, and Lucas, he's like, oh, no, I love New Coke. <laughs> and it was kind of like he was the only kid in the group that mm. liked the, the new flavor. <laughs> so here's the story behind it. Um, Pepsi came out with the Pepsi Challenge, going around the country, doing taste tests, blind taste tests. What do you like better, Pepsi or Coke? Can you tell the difference? And uh, supposedly the, the statistics showed that there was an overwhelming demand for Pepsi, uh, which scared the Coke executives, and they had to do something. So they introduced, drumroll, new Coke. Uh, They tried to make a Pepsi-like beverage that was sweeter. Um, I'm identifying this as a problem with benchmarking. Um, They really frustrated their customer. Their customer did not like new Coke. Uh, They liked the classic taste of classic Coke. So some three months later, they had to rebrand and uh, reintroduce Coca-Cola Classic. Um, And I think that this is a problem with benchmarking that I think is absolutely relative to the industry we work in, um, absolutely relative to investors, savers, um, and personal finance. And that's where I want to segue to a conversation about benchmarking in finance. It makes sense, too, because it kind of goes back to, uh, and you talk about this in the article, but you know, the less tinkering, the better. Well, it's the same thing if you're looking at asset classes or benchmarks. It's always easy to look back in hindsight and see what did well and then say, oh, I, I should own more of that or I should more do more of this when it's actually the exact opposite. Just because something did well yesterday does not mean it will do well in the future. And I think that's kind of what you're getting at with benchmarks. Yeah, this idea of rearview mirror investing can get you in a lot of trouble. And uh, there was that little quip I said that's often used in finance is that portfolios are like soap. The more you play with them, the smaller they get. Um, and I think that that makes sense. But, and I'll throw this question over to you, Kenny, I get it. Um, I, you, have to, you have to relate it to something. Um, as human beings, we want to understand, are we doing good, bad, uh, or, or what am I measuring myself against? Sure. But I, I think also important is, uh, is that appropriate for me, right? I think in our industry, there's a lot of, uh, I think one of the biggest benchmarks is uh, SPY. So uh, S&P 500, right? And I think uh, perhaps myself as a younger investor with a lengthy time horizon, maybe that's appropriate. Maybe I could take on the amount of risk. 
but personally, if I was maybe 39 years online, I have a couple of kids, I need to put them to college, I can't take that amount of volatility. Not because maybe I don't have confidence in its, uh, the possibility that it uh, recovers if there's volatility, but if I need to make payment for my kid at that point, 30, 40 years from now, or I need to buy a second home, or I need to retire, uh, that, that, that's not appropriate for me. So I think that conversation of benchmarking uh, also changes as, uh, alongside you, your, your time horizon, and your objectives. So you're kind of saying is um, you almost need to customize your benchmark, and we'll talk about what that could look like right. or, or what that is, um, because if you're using something that is not appropriate to your financial plan or your goals, um, then it is uh, it adds no value to you. And it's going to keep yeah. kind of tugging at you, I think. I love that soap analogy, by the way. That is an amazing analogy, and it's so, so true. Uh, I think that people have a bias to action, and generally speaking, I think when it comes to uh, portfolio and investing, the money is really made from sitting, and it's hard for people to do when uh, when you know they're seeing returns and stuff's moving all the time. People want to do something, and and just it's similar to the Coke uh, analogy, sometimes the best thing to do is just do nothing. Um, but you know, some people have a very hard time with that. Yeah, I think the whole idea is benchmarking is really just comp- you know comparing what your performance is to others to uh, another basket of securities. I think it's just very natural as people we want to know, uh, you know, uh, where how are we doing? How are we doing compared to that guy or that gal? And and I think uh, you know, obviously, you talked a little bit about the mutual fund industry uh, and trying to find a way to evaluate managers and their performance. And there's really not a great way to do that. And, you know, hence the idea of all these different benchmarks and oh, what space do you play in? And given that you play in this space, let's compare you to the other managers. And that's, well, let's first define what the space is. And then we can then start a, a more of a uh, logical type of comparison. So, yeah. And I'll shift a little bit right here. If you're listening to this, I'm going to be on your side. I don't like it when advisors uh, dance around this idea of benchmarking and, um, you know, we we don't want to measure against that or that's not fair. We use this. No, I get it. Like you want to measure against something. I just think that the conversation has to be intellectual. Like I don't think it can just be a shoot from the hip and say, hey, I got this mailer that says this strategy got this and I didn't get this. It's got to be so hard to have that conversation all the time. For you guys, for you guys. I mean, we're on the portfolio side, so we generally don't have uh, those. At least with the level of frequency, obviously, that you, that you guys have those conversations with clients. But uh, I imagine, uh, yeah, if this thing's very shiny and it's moving very fast, it uh, you know distracts them from what they're spo- you know what the client is supposed to be focused on. Squirrel. Yeah, it, yeah, <laughs> it comes up all the time. I, I was thinking about this as you're just uh, as you were talking, Daya, that people are a lot less patient now. And mm. if you think about it, one of the, the hardest things to do is to stay invested and st- stick with the plan. And uh, we are in an instant gratification world right now where uh, I, I kind of chuckle yeah. that people that invest in cryptocurrency, there are some, uh, it's pretty volatile, which people I think in a weird way enjoy, whether it's good or bad. <laughs> but when it's just flat, I think it drives people crazy. They're already thinking what's next. And I chuckle because I follow That's some true. of these people on social media and maybe the volatility only stopped for like a week or two, which in the real world of investing is a very small period. But they look at it as, well, okay, what's next? Well, what, I need to do something. It's like the bar of soap. Yeah. yeah. And if, if patience is a muscle, you understand why we're in an instant gratification culture because 
there are not a lot of things that encourage you to exercise that muscle. You get your cheeseburger in under 30 seconds. Your Uber shows up uh, within the next two minutes. Um, you're used to being able to get any information you want from the uh, Google machine uh, as quick as you want. So you don't get an opportunity to uh, exercise that patient's muscle. Yeah, for sure. Uh, those, are, those are great examples. Um, so how do you guys get clients to exercise the patient muscle? Well, Trevor mentions in an article, setting expectations is really important because another thing that the investment world has done is so people have always bragged about their performance, right? Mm. Well, in a world where people post things and it's a little bit more in your face, it's really easy to see who the winners were and, it, and people don't talk about their losers as much, right? And what happens is it gives a false sense of expectation where maybe they think 20% returns is the norm or should happen every year. Well, a seasoned investor knows that's not the case. So uh, I think as mm -hmm. Trevor mentioned, it's really important to make sure that if you are comparing to a benchmark that you're breaking down based off asset class and then you're realistic with what those expectations should be. Yeah, and I think another thing that goes along with it, and hopefully this is helpful, is um, if you're going to choose, and we'll get into some of the ideas of what I said you could use as benchmarks, but if you're going to use something as an example of, hey, this did better than what I did, I think the next logical question is, then why don't we own that? Um, and if that is your target or your objective, um, is it possible for you to own that? Um, and if you did own that, what would be the pros and cons? And does that strategy go through seasons of plenty and seasons of want, right? Um, and is there some sort of like cyclical nature to it? There probably is. Uh, and that's why I wanted to give that background of the mutual fund industry, mm. because I think it leaves some clues for us. You go back to whatever year it was, you know, the mid-1920s, uh, when that first mutual fund came out. I think it was the Massachusetts MFS. I think, that, uh, mm. I think they're still around. I think they had uh, the first mutual fund. And, um, okay, now there was a way for investors to buy one fund and get uh, a diversified exposure. That was pretty cool. Uh, that was revolutionary at the time. Uh, then it became an industry, mm. right? Uh, so then you have now 8,000 mutual funds. Um, and when it becomes an industry, there are people that want to measure everything about it. Um, you want to understand that? Go look at baseball. Look at all the statistics in baseball. Uh, I compared mutual fund fact cards to baseball cards, right? There's some sort of flashy graphic, and then there's a million statistics. There's uh, Sortino ratios and Sharp ratios and alpha and beta and all these words and this nomenclature that we understand in the industry. What happened as those metrics became uh, measurements that were judging managers, those are managers that are real people that have families that pay bills that want to keep their career. So you started to mix this thing, which if you're going to benchmark me against XYZ, man, I better not look that different than XYZ because I want to work here next year. <laughs> so you start mixing this thing with the metric that I talked about in the article called tracking error. How, how different are you than your benchmark? And this idea of career risk. And you started to find uh, what they call, what would they call that? Uh, is it benchmark hugging? Is that the, the term? Herding. It, index hugging. Yeah. yeah, index or, hugging or, oh, or herding yeah. okay, or yeah, whatever yeah. it is, um, where you have 8,000 mutual funds or whatever, you know, uh, oh, like class a by class. Closet indexer. Yeah, closet indexer yeah, that yeah. just look like the index and they charge a lot more. Yes, of course, the financial media is then going to turn around and criticize the mutual fund industry when you do the exact same thing as the benchmark and you charge 10 times as much. Uh, but... That is averages. 
uh, and that makes for good media stories. But guess what? You are not going to get average results. If you step out there today um, and you go to the beach, you're not going to get average weather. You're going to get the weather of where you are at. Uh, and that's why benchmarking, in my mind, can be a little bit distracting. I, I, I completely agree. And it goes back to you know the incentives. And I think it's useful to put yourself... Um, you know, maybe it's a bit of a stretch, but as far as let, let's say you were appointed to be the portfolio manager of a, uh, let's say uh, pick your, one of the biggest fund families and you're managing a couple billion dollar mutual fund that's, that's benchmarked against, let's say the SP 500. Are you going to take outsized risks to try to, to try to generate, uh, returns for clients? Even if you think it's a good risk. Why are you going to take it? There's there's no incentive to take it. It's just like the Coke example. Uh, your job is to just keep the status quo and just keep uh, just keep just not make mistakes. And once your job is to not make mistakes, you stop you stop being creative and you stop trying to have good ideas uh, that are value add. And uh, unfortunately, it's one of the things that you have to be cognizant of when you're evaluating managers is their ability to have the courage to stray from the benchmark. Um, and is typically the sign of uh, of a good manager. And so. they're, they're constantly trying to uh, incentivize those fund managers, right, by having their own money invested. And some mm. of it's based off performance incentive instead of just collecting fees, right? Yeah, I think uh, obviously you want somebody who's aligned. Um, there are different, different fund families do things differently where all the employee in- investment has to be in the fund. Uh, I think there's different rules. But yes, I think uh, you, you definitely look for uh, an alignment and incentives and uh, the right philosophy. And uh, and I think it's funny because Trevor mentions all these different metrics at our industry, and it's literally – it's infinite. You can get lost. <laughs> it's an ocean of metrics out there. And I think uh, what's, what's almost more useful that, than that is creating a qualitative framework, is meeting the manager, really trying to understand the philosophy, and, and just using uh, – judgment using the human element through experience to arrive at a, a decision if this is a good manager or not uh, you know you need the quantitative stuff too but it shouldn't come at the expense of judgment or the or the human element and i know i know kenny obviously does a lot of uh, due diligence with alternative managers and it can be hard to disentangle skill from luck um so i yeah the, I, I mean we have a lot of those conversations of course, yeah. and going back to also just mutual fund managers going through some of those Morningstar reports that sometimes we, uh, you know, run through. And we're also trying to uh, kind of separate the qualitative and the quantitative. I suppose um, you can create pages and pages of metrics and reports and graphs and charts, and uh, you could have, unfortunately, a little bit of also analysis paralysis, right? And that's where, mm. when you're building your portfolio for a needs base, like how does this help me get to my objectives, help me achieve my dreams. That's what helps you kind of make that decision making. And then benchmarking, as Trevor said, could be wholly appropriate because you, you still want to be relative. Like, am I doing well? Am I doing poorly? Uh, but just using that to like inform your opinion. And if there's action needed, then action can be taken. But otherwise, uh, if you're still on track to achieving your objectives, the benchmarking should just tell you like, hey, yeah, some, uh, maybe the market's doing a little better. Maybe it's doing a little worse. Uh, take what you need from that and then ask yourself, but am I still doing fine? And then uh, benchmarking at that point can uh, behaviorally be, be uh, managed. I think kind of the obvious thing that we don't talk about is the allocation itself, because if you're just, for example, in a portfolio that's mixed of uh, equities and stocks and bonds and alternatives, um, you can't look at the S&P or the Dow and and try to compare it because they're not apples to apples. 
But that's kind of a the obvious thing, right, Trav? Yeah, I think it is obvious, but um, you know, there's a ton of research that says those allocation decisions uh, drive a lot of returns. Um, I have a lot of conversations with clients and conversations, or maybe new clients, that they don't think I'm going to have. It says, hey, what's your differentiator, Trevor? Mm. Uh, what are you going to bring to the table that uh, you know, if I interview three or four other advisors, uh, won't? Um, I might put you in a portfolio that three or four other advisors wouldn't. Um, and I think that allocation decision and your education and your understanding and my ability to come alongside you and help you, I'm sorry to use this word, but endure that portfolio, it's going to make a difference. Uh, like we've talked about on this podcast, you start adding one or 2% type of returns and compound them over a long time. Uh, extra returns aren't for free, right? They come with some volatility, but you do that handholding and that help for a client. That's a big difference maker. Uh, but there's some career risks for there, right? Um, because you definitely could put somebody in a portfolio where uh, they change their mind and they're like, hey, I'm not comfortable with this. And I've had other advisors say, hey, I would never do that because we're in a litigious society <laughs> and uh, that, that, that makes me nervous. Um, and nobody ever got fired for putting somebody in a 60-40 portfolio. Uh, and I hear that, but it's how I'm wired. I have to put somebody uh, as if I was in their shoes. What advice would I want? Knowing what I know, um, what type of advice would I want to get on the other end? Uh, and I can't, uh, I, I'm not trying to be uh, dramatic, but I can't go to sleep at night uh, just saying, oh, I'm going to be status quo. I'm going to throw you in a 60, I'm going to throw everybody in a 60 40 portfolio. Um, that way, uh, nobody ever got fired for serving vanilla ice cream. It's, it's hard to me to envision a world where you feel good coming to work if you know that's what you do. It, you're just, it's a commoditized, deliverable that there's nothing special about what you're doing or maybe you're communicating differently but uh i i think that it's i can, i think conviction is something that's really really important in capital markets and having uh being able to obviously balance risk and understand risk and prepare a portfolio for a range of outcomes uh and then also to uh to, to say to the client or or uh whoever a prospect that look i we're not taking a total market approach where we're buying you know, 0.1% of every security on the planet, that that area of capital markets we're completely avoiding for these reasons. And I think uh, clients respect a point of view, and I think it, it makes you a better advisor with that type of thought process. And I think it's accompanied by uh, what I would call an intellectual conversation um, to say that we think valuation matters. Well, Trevor, I, I know you think valuation matters, but uh, I could have bought a uh, you know, this, that, and the other, and it's gone up this. Um, we think that's overvalued. Mm. Well, but it's done this. We think it's now more overvalued than when we already thought it was overvalued. Um, as I tell people, expensive things can get more expensive. Um, and I don't know how to call bubbles, but let me tell you how bubbles work. They look very attractive until they pop, mm -hmm. um, right? Like my son, he, if I'm blowing up a balloon for him, bigger, bigger. I, wanna, I want the biggest possible balloon. He doesn't want it to pop. Um, but he wants to uh, maximize that utility. He wants the biggest possible bubble. And investors aren't much different. Um, they want that to keep growing. Um, and they don't think about things like valuation. But nobody thinks about valuation until it matters. Um, and I love this story that I've heard David Bonson uh, sprinkle in uh, on a couple different podcasts that he's had. Um, it's impossible for a portfolio manager not to be influenced by the era they grew up in, right? So if David Bonson started as a portfolio manager 20 years ago, and we start to look at, okay, what happened 20 years ago? Um, oh, 
tech stocks got really overvalued. Um, the NASDAQ spent 15 years underwater. Um, 2000 to 2010, we called the lost decade because the S&P 500 uh, went nowhere. Okay, I could understand why somebody like David Bonson uh, would think valuation matters because he saw how detrimental it could be for clients if they experienced uh, an extended season of paltry results and how that means somebody might have to work an extra five or six years where it means that somebody might be able to not cover their kid's college like they, they plan to. Um, that is very real. Um, now, he might be talking to somebody like John Malden who you know started his career when inflation was double digits. Mm. That is going to drive a paradigm. Um, where you might, you know, uh, be more apt to have an interest in commodities or things that uh, are appropriate in that type of environment. So I think that type of honesty up front to say, hey, this is the era I grew up in. Um, I know uh, my my dad always used to tell me, like uh, grandparents or whatever, that grew up as depression babies, and uh, they don't leave any food on their plate. Uh, ain't nothing going in that garbage can. Mm. Uh, it's either getting wrapped up, it's saved, it's eaten. Uh, like I, when I went to dinner with my dad, he never ordered. Um, whatever the kids left on their plate, scoop it on over here. I'm going to finish it um, because he was not wasteful. Um, that's that's the paradigm that he grew up in. Totally. And I, that, that's why it's so important to have a extremely broad and balanced historical view and it's important to realize uh, what's the saying that, that history is is a guide; it's not gospel. And to try to balance that with some forward-looking thinking, because although the you know the future may rhyme with the past, it doesn't necessarily repeat. So you can't be too stringent on saying, "Okay, uh, you know, twenty years ago when multiples got to this level, that means that the market crashed." So when multiples get to this level. I'm gonna. It's definitely gonna crash. I mean, there's there's always uh, different factors involved. You know, there's interest rates. There's different uh, business models. All these things render uh, historical analysis uh, less uh, less clear than you would like. So uh, that that's why I'm, I'm. You know, I said it before about the human element and using judgment uh, and really being. Uh, having intellectual humility to know that you don't have all the answers. And despite all the data in the world, you're still not going to be able to make a perfect decision. So you should approach things with the perspective of, I don't know the future. That's step one. And then you use as much history and analysis as you can to come up with uh, with a strategy of how to position yourself moving forward. So, yeah. That's a good point because, you know, especially your guys' job, it's definitely an art and a science, you know, because if it was all quantitative, then anyone could do it. Exactly. They would check all yeah. the boxes and you'd be good to go. But uh, I, I do think it takes that skill set of the human element as well. Yeah. And then it would all be commoditized because yeah. everybody can write an algorithm. You know, you know. And, so, and anyone will do it for a little bit less. <laughs> right. Exactly. So. And I think that gets us to a little bit of a place. This is going to be a weird statement to say, but as an investor – you have to be okay with leaving some returns on the table because none of us, not, I don't want to say none of us, it is very hard to have a clear understanding of what risk actually is. Um, when you're building a financial plan, you have a good idea of risk because you know, yikes, this can't happen because it will equal failure. So sometimes you can't step into things that feel overvalued. Day is right that uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Like we can use metrics like current valuation or 
current bond yield to get a general understanding of what the forecasted future return looks like. And once you plug that into a financial plan, if it's not penciling, or if the potential drawdown from something like an overvaluation could have a negative impact, uh, impact on the portfolio, you got to leave some returns on the table. You can't afford to be part of that bubble position, um, even though you might not know when it's going to pop or when those valuations are going to have you know, some sort of reversion to the mean. That's why the plan is, is connecting the portfolio to a plan is so important. So huge. Um, creating a portfolio without a plan, uh, there's some analogy out there, but yeah, it's just silly. The, it's, a, it's just a bet without a, a plan. or I, I forget the analogy. But there's one out there. Yeah. <laughs> it's something about it being stupid. Yeah. Um, but hey, uh, one thing that I want to get to in, towards the end of the article, I put, um, I gave you three benchmarks because I, I really want to fight against this idea of not being an advisor that just says, hey, Dea, uh, we got this taken care of. Trust me. Uh, we don't need no stinking benchmark. Um, no, I, I don't want to do that. I want to give you an idea of what are realistic benchmarks that you should start with. Um, so I went over three. The first one I said is a needs-based benchmark. If the portfolio has a marriage and it is married to the financial plan, your financial plan has a blank space in it where you fill in some sort of expected rate of return. Your portfolio needs to meet that expected base rate of return. So there's a needs-based benchmark. Uh, if you created a financial plan that uh, needs to compound at 5% or 5.5%, that's your needs-based benchmark. Um, and when do you measure that? Uh, you have to decide with your advisor. Are, do you measure that at a five-year time period? You're probably not going to measure it on a one-year time period because guess what? Returns aren't linear. Um, so this idea of a needs-based benchmark is extremely important. What do you need? Because honestly, uh, doing better than an index or doing better than your neighbor don't matter if it, you can't reach your personal objectives. Yeah, I agree. I, I would uh, relate it in my life, uh, perhaps like buying a, a house or a car. It's like uh, for X amount, you can get uh, a sports car or you can get a truck or you can get a utility vehicle. And it doesn't matter if your buddy bought the fastest sports car with the big engine, if you uh, work in construction and, and you need to haul some stuff over, right? And And you just have to be uh, understand that, sure, a, a lot of it should be, hey, I like this and this works for me. Uh, and understanding that you're constrained by certain parameters that are appropriate wholly to yourself, right? And then understand that the, they will drive around or, or, or buy a house or or do something that's a little different than yours. And there's going to be a little bit of that where it's like, oh, that would have been nicer or, or that I can see why that's attractive. But understanding that you chose a needs-based uh, uh, objective or you made a needs-based purchase or, or action and that's helping you achieve what well, is going to help you in the long term. I think you said that perfect. I think uh, I hear constant examples of, well, I heard this did well or that did well. Why didn't we own it? And and I always have to remind them that the original conversation is most people, once you're constructing a financial plan and they're later in life and if they've done a great job saving, they don't need to swing for the fences. They, they don't necessarily need to be benchmarking themselves to the S&P or uh, dabble in some sort of new sexy investment. Uh, at the end of the day, you need to create an investment portfolio that matches their needs and then they, uh, like you said, a lot of it comes from coaching, too, in those conversations uh, during good times and bad times that uh, we, we built this for a reason and we're going to stick with it. So benchmark number one is based on your needs, the needs-based benchmark. Uh, number two is the expectation-based benchmark, which could feel like the needs, but it's actually different. Um, the expectation benchmark comes from clarity. Um what do you think your results are going to be, Mr. and Mrs. Client? 
take a guess um, because what you think is really important to make sure that that's the way that we actually designed the portfolio. Um, I had a call with a potential client the other day, um, uh, a young lady that I really enjoy talking to, uh, very intelligent, um, and uh, paid for a financial plan to be created. And it was a really good financial plan, lots of uh, very granular advice. Uh, One critique I had against the financial plan, though, is that it had an assumed rate of return in there um, of uh, 7%. And that was the base case. Uh, and I just went through looking at the portfolio and like your half stocks and your half bonds. Let's use some like basic metrics. If your bond portfolio has a yield of one and a half percent, and if the valuation on your stock portfolio is 25 times earnings, we can use those as light metrics to forecast what expected returns are in the future. I did some back of the napkin math and I probably got to like a four and a half percent number. compounding is a lot different than 7%. So with an expectation expectation benchmark, um, was she walking into this uh, expecting to get a 7% return but has a portfolio that is, based on probabilities, most likely going to deliver 4.5%, then maybe minus out cost and you're in the high 3%, there's a big variance there. Um, And that's why I think um, expectations need to be discussed, uh, they need to be set, and they need to be agreed upon. Uh, are they realistic? Are they reliable? Um, and is somebody else signing off that uh, they're going to be accountable for those type of results? And, and not to mention, 7% is, uh, is an average. I mean, how often are you going to actually see an exact 7% rate of return on a calendar year? You're going to get negative 4%, up 20%, you know, down. You know, there's a significant amount of variance and what what is that expectation benchmark like when when with, with that type of variance uh, i mean I, I it's hard for me to reconcile the variance in in capital market returns with a a point estimate expectation i love that you said that because one of the conversations that we constantly have to have as advisors is that when we set in a financial plan you are setting a linear rate of return, right? You can run uh, variation scenarios like a Monte Carlo simulation, but but in the end, uh, the, the memory bank is going to grab on to, hey, I thought we were targeting six one, and a half. Number. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's another important conversation to have is we're going to measure this number on, on a five-year basis or a seven-year basis or a 10-year basis. You, you have to have a discussion and decide because uh, you absolutely are not going to measure it on a one-year basis um, because unless you're doing something like a CD that's giving you a fixed rate of return, the predictability on a shorter time period uh, is not reliable at all. Um, and that I don't think is intuitive if you're not in finance, right? If you're not in finance, you're like, wait, don't you guys just, <laughs> the financial finance is... Wait, wait, Said you year did... 2022, I'd have this much money. What happened? It's wrong. Yeah, the, yeah, and a lot of the time uh, on that exact point that Sean says, I will joke with people and I will tell them, hey, we are playing a game of horseshoes, not a game of darts. Yeah. We won't hit bullseyes, but getting close to the target, uh, getting close to the pin in horseshoes, that gets you points. Um, and that's, that's the game we're really playing with financial planning. Uh, it's a game of horseshoes and hand grenades, not a game of uh, trying to hit bullseyes. Yeah, absolutely. And that get, kind of gets back to being comfortable with adequate returns. Uh, if you if you see a portfolio, if I see a portfolio, if a prospect comes over and I see that they made, uh, you know, whatever, 40% and uh, last year wasn't a great example, but let's say they make 40% this year. I, I get a little worried. I'm like, yeah. what is in this portfolio? 
that we need to seriously consider uh, reducing level risk or you know whatever the deal is, because that can be a, a signal too. Generally speaking, if there's that much upside, there 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 is the possibility for a greater amount of downside. So uh, you know, I think uh, I think having that ability to coach the client and have them be comfortable with the adequate returns, have them understand, like Kenny's analogy, you know. The, like you need a truck, you don't need a sports car. This is exactly what you're trying to do. I, I think that those those conversations are abs, and that education uh, is absolutely invaluable. You know what I was just thinking of? I was kind of like spacing off, looking out the window, but it's really interesting because I've noticed that the more experience or time that an investor or prospector or client has had in the market, they typically have a more realistic expectation, and it's typically the newer investors that have had less experience that have unrealistic expectations. They think everything goes up a ton, right? But it's ironic because those are the people that need the financial advice probably the most, and they're going to be attracted to the shiniest thing or whoever tells them what they want to hear and potentially could have the worst outcome. And so it's pretty interesting. Yeah. Trevor's smiling at me. That was good. (laughs) I'm smiling because I'm thinking about, like, taking your kids to the first baseball game. Uh, They sit down at the seats and we're like, here comes that home run. And you're like, you're like, uh... We're going to be here for a while, yeah, and we know, might not see one. <laughs> sometimes people celebrate it when the game, when there's no hits, and they're like, wait, what? <laughs> a no-hitter is a good thing? I came for some home runs. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, experience definitely changes your vantage point. Uh, I I think the third benchmark I put on here, um, I think it's to scratch a qualitative itch, and I think it's a curveball. I don't think a lot of people would have thought that this would be a wise benchmark. But I know you, uh, investor, are going to um, have a tendency to wish you owned something else. I do too. I- I'm, uh, I'm susceptible to that as well. I'm, I'm a human being. So what I'm asking you to do is pick one substitute. Uh, you know, we, we invested your money in a, a dividend growth strategy and you were weighing that against this other potential option. Perfect. Write it down. That is your one alternative uh, that you're going to use as a benchmark. Uh, that is going to uh, put a leash on your uh, envy um, and stop you from saying, oh, well, you know, I was actually considering uh, doing this high flyer. <laughs> no, no, no. Like, okay, and maybe your substitute benchmark um, does do better. And that's okay, too. Um, if you want to go that route and you want to invest, guess what? It's your money. Um, we as an advisor operate as a fiduciary. We have that legal responsibility to act in your best interest, to build a portfolio that is complementary to a financial plan. But I say you put a substitute in a lockbox. Um, that way we can all be honest with each other that um, you weren't going to buy this triple leveraged ETF uh, for this uh, subsector that so went just, wild. So just like memorializing your mentality at the, at the time. Yeah, okay, okay. to say like, hey, um, like the way I think about it is economics is full of substitutes and trade-offs. Mm. Um, so you chose to go this route. What was the other route you were going to choose? Um, like Kenny mentioned this idea of the S&P 500, or it could be the NASDAQ, or it could be whatever. I- I'm just saying write it down um, because me and Sean joke all the time. I am famous for saying like, oh, I knew that sports team was going to win the finals. Yes. And he's like, no, Everybody, you didn't. Everybody does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. It's this uh, rewriting history that you do in your mind. Right, and then so let let's say that they uh, the client or the prospect or whatever does write that down uh, two years from now, whatever that whatever they put in that bucket did terribly. Do you do you bring it up? I mean, no, you know what? So I haven't ever actually exercised this. I'm just giving this advice to say, okay, okay. Um, just the listeners, okay. yeah, just the listeners to say like, hey, it's not a bad idea to do it. The reason I'm saying this is I'm not anti benchmark. 
Um, and I don't like it when advisors do that. I, I don't like it, like I said earlier, when advisors just like, hey, uh, Mr. or Mrs. Client, just trust me. I got this taken care of. You know, go live life and we got you. We got you. No, it's okay. Have benchmarks. Like I said, uh, benchmarks based on your needs, benchmarks based on your expectations. Uh, all of this stuff is creating really good conversations. And then the third one I'm saying is like, hey, let's be honest with each other. Um, what is that substitute that you were willing to own? Um, some of these strategies that I'm not willing to own personally, like I said, based on valuation, that's not going to my lockbox because I am not going to endure a decade of uh, negative results. Uh, I'm not wired for that. Uh, I can't do that. I selfishly like a dividend portfolio because as we say on this podcast a lot, if total return is the summation of income plus appreciation, I like this idea that I know that income is reliable, that it's coming in on a regular basis, that it's sustainable, and that it's some, you know, sizable portion of my total return is coming from that income bucket. I like that. I'm wired that way. Um, I don't like the idea of just hoping for the best, understanding that appreciation is lumpy and, um, you know, cross my fingers and close my eyes. I I, I love that. And I think the the key takeaway is... Uh, what Trevor said, we're not anti-benchmark, even though we had a lot of criticisms about benchmarks. Uh, we're huge advocates of the right benchmark. And having the right thought process to arrive at the right benchmark uh, is really helpful for your financial su- or success. Yeah, I think keeping scores natural. Uh, like you said, Trevor, keeping something in the lockbox, the what if, uh, is is a pretty good thing that can actually help you stick to it. I think especially if, if you are uh, cognizant of that and keep uh, actively tracking how would my would have have done right as you mentioned hey two years down the line you can make a very easy comparison like here's seven and here's ten obviously one is better but those rides could be very different right that volatility the experiences the drawdowns could be very different and you have to ask, ask yourself where am in my life could i have put my savings could i have put my net worth into my uh what if and could i have ridden that all the way down and more importantly, also, you know, ask yourself, could I have ridden it all the way up? Like, let's say, especially timely conversation, crypto, you put, uh, for some reason, a substantial amount of your savings in that. When would you have capitulated to the upside? Like, let's say, statistically, you probably wouldn't have chosen the winner. But if you did, you might have ridden it up one, two, three times over. But would you have gotten that 10% return? Maybe not, right? Even even to the upside, it might have been hard to manage as an investor. So you have to be realistic. Could I have survived the ride? in my would have portfolio as well, right? And and perhaps if not, then understand that, okay, it's first, it's a good thing that I stuck to whatever portfolio I spoke with my uh, financial planner or my advisor. And maybe I should also uh, refocus what that what if is, because obviously that wasn't wholly appropriate. Uh, and then that helps you maybe stick a little closer to, to what you're actually invested in. Hmm. I didn't write about this in the article, but uh, we'll come up with a, a new section, the tale of two social events uh, in my own life. I remember one social event very clearly. I was uh, at a, a Bible study and we were doing a, a potluck barbecue. Um, and I was sitting there with the pastor and uh, one of my uh, other friends that was in the Bible study. And he was aggressively, this was maybe five years ago, maybe longer, I don't know, aggressively selling us on this idea of cryptocurrency. When if you Googled cryptocurrency, it probably didn't even come up. Like it wasn't like a, a hot topic then. I look back at that point and I make jokes with him. We have text messages where like, like, hey, if I would have took your advice, um, I would have been up astronomical percentages, right? 20000 30000 He bought a house with the money. He, he made significant money. Um, he's not a financial advisor. Um, that advice uh, uh, was, was backed by this, this, this thesis and idea and argument. 
fast forward, um, maybe I think it was like six months ago. At a, and I've shared this before. I was at a kid's birthday party, uh, one of my uh, my family friends, and uh, the dad was repping that same cryptocurrency um, and giving the same thesis in the same argument. Um, and it, like it, he was he was more aggressive. It's a no brainer. Um, I look at the price of that today. It's fifty percent less than um, that that party. Uh, both people giving the same advice about the same asset um, with two very different results. Uh, guess what they had in common? Neither of them were going to be accountable for those results. Um, it was a conversation in passing. They're not a fiduciary. Um, I think that matters. I think that um, if you're willing to sit down and create a financial plan and design a portfolio, you're also willing to be accountable to that. And that is my argument a lot of times with um, uh, new clients that come in. Um, I'm signing up for this. I will be accountable for your results. Does that mean that um, I'm going to create this significant portfolio that is, uh, looks so much different than the market? No. It means that I will stand by you and stand by my advice. Um, will I make mistakes? I'm sure I will. Um, but I will do my best to act in your best interest, and I will be accountable to that. That is very different than my two friends at that party that were promoting the exact same thing. Um, and the timing of those things mattered a lot. So one of them would have made me very wealthy. Um, one of them would have uh, maybe turned me off from investing altogether. Um, so it matters where you're getting your advice from. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's a whole lot of unfounded conviction out there. And, uh, and like you said, maybe, maybe your friend, maybe he did, he, did, he did do a lot of work. and He, did, he has a thesis, and, and it makes sense, and it's all logical and so on. But I, I get very worried when I talk to anybody who's talking about the investing in anything and they're a uh, single scenario type thinker. Like this is definitely what's going to happen in the future. I, I immediately kind of start tuning out, or I'm like, "Oh, you're human, just like me, right? We're both human beings." Okay, so neither of us know what's going to happen in the future. Uh, and I think always being mindful of that will help you make better decisions. And like Trevor was saying, is the whole idea behind a portfolio is that is founded on that concept? Is because if we knew what was going to happen, we would own one the best security. That, that was going to perform, uh, that was going to have the greatest amount of performances here. But we don't do that because uh, we understand uh, we, there's an irreducible level of uncertainty out there. So, uh, you know, hence a portfolio, hence something that, uh, you know, doesn't, uh, doesn't go up a ton one day or down a ton one day and uh, moves, uh, moves in a more stable in a more stable manner. So, and like Trevor said, uh, you know, we are accountable for that advice. Yeah. I think just also understanding or having looked at numbers for, for a little bit also helps me understand what those conversations really look like on average, going back to that average conversation. And a lot of people, perhaps, as you mentioned, who are first-time investors or are willing to put a little bit of money in for the first time and see where that goes, when they hear the success stories, or as Sean mentioned earlier, uh, they're surrounded by a highlight reel of people who have made a lot of money on TV, on uh, social media sites, they think, it could happen to me too. I actually take it from a, a different perspective like Dea, when I start listening to those people, it's like the probability that I'm that guy is so low, I'm not even going to go down that route. So a little bit of understanding, a little bit of knowledge helps you uh, temper those conversations and understand like you're not the exception. You're probably going to be the norm. So do something that on average is going to is going to help you get to your objectives. And it's good that you're able to see those scenarios of the, the birthday party and the Bible study and be able to differentiate that because a lot of people would look at the first scenario and say, wow, I really missed out. That's not going to happen again. And so when the next shiny thing comes up, they go all in 
And bad news happens. <laughs> yeah, to be avoided. Don't do that. Yeah, um, if you read the the Thoughts on Money uh, blog a lot or you listen to this podcast, you know very well that I have a small inventory of jokes and stories that sometimes I, I cycle through. And I ended this article um, with this, this little quip that I tell clients uh, sometimes uh, is that, man, if I had a time machine, I would be the best investor of all time. And obviously that's funny. And obviously uh, that's obvious, uh, right? Uh, but I go back to one of my favorite movies, uh, uh, Back to the Future, um, where uh, Michael J. Fox, um, uh, Marty, is going back in time, and he actually leaves his sports almanac. And his sports almanac has uh, all the history of who won these, uh, you know, the World Series or the NBA Championship. And uh, the uh, the villain in the story, uh, Biff, uh, comes across that sports almanac, and he's like, "What? What is this?" And he starts to flip through it, and it's future dates and the results of those uh, those sporting events. Um, and this creates an alternative reality because what does Biff do? He bets big on all those sports games because he can do it with a hundred percent accuracy. Um, and uh, to me, in my mind, it's like, man, if I had a time machine, I'd do that too. Even if I could get the newspaper just one day early. Um, that would be enough. Yeah, yeah, it would be enough, right? I'd know the results for the sports games. i know what stocks did. i know corporate news, all of those things. Bring, bring on the leverage. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, and that's the joke I make with people a lot. And if you're listening to podcasts, you're like, oh, he uses that joke with other people too. But uh, when they say, hey, I wish I would have owned this last year, I'm like, oh, you're crazy. You actually wish you would have owned this and owned this with a whole lot of leverage, um, <laughs> which, man, I would have done too if I had a time machine. Um, but hey, back to reality. We don't have a time machine. Um, so we're stuck. We got to make financial plans. Uh, we got to design portfolios that take risk into account. Uh, we got to understand that there is uncertainty. We don't know the outcomes. Um, and we have to manage to that. You will always be able to find something that did better. Um, but that has no impact on your objectives. That has no impact on you paying for your grandkids college. That has no impact on you getting your second home, uh, that you've always dreamed of. That has no impact on your charitable, um, aspirations you have. You have your snowflake. You have a unique financial plan that is unique to you. Um, and you should design a portfolio that supports that accordingly and try your darndest to not get distracted. We did an article a few weeks ago called Sirens. Guess what? Benchmarks can be sirens. Uh, they can be a huge distraction. Um, so make sure you're using the right benchmark. Uh, today we talked about three, a needs-based benchmark. Make sure that you are hitting your needs based on your financial plan. Expectation-based benchmark that you have the right expectations coming into it. And just to tickle your fancy, your substitution, or what did I call that? A substitute-based benchmark. Uh, pick a substitute. Pick one alternate. Uh, if you like the show Friends, um, they used to, uh, in one episode, uh, Ross and uh, what was his uh, girlfriend's name? Jennifer Aniston? She was Rachel. Rachel. Uh, Ross and Rachel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in one of the episodes, uh, they each make a list that uh, of uh, famous people. I think they get five famous people. And if I ever run into these people, I can go on a date with this person and, and uh, you know, quote unquote, cheat on you. Um, and it's it's funny, right? Because it's never going to happen. Um, and Ross takes it really seriously, uh, and he picks his five or ten, whatever it is. And there's this one person that he just like leaves off the list, and he's like, oh, okay, you know, I couldn't narrow it down. And then. He, send, he's, he sees that person at the uh, end of the show at the coffee shop. He's hitting Rachel. He's like, can I add to my list? Can I go talk to this girl? So this idea of the substitute benchmark is, come on, 
be realistic. What would you actually have invested in? Uh, be honest with yourself. Um, so that is our advice to you. Uh, we've already done a long podcast, so I will do no final thoughts, no going around the horn. I will ask our listeners uh, to rate the podcast, um, to leave comments. Email us at tom at thebonsagroup.com. We really appreciate you joining us. Um, and uh, of course, we will be back next week with more of our thoughts, thoughts on money. money. The Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor before establishing a retirement plan.